And please turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 35. Psalm 35. Uh, the last time that I taught, we looked at the first two-thirds of Psalm 35. And so the plan is to finish uh, Psalm 35 this evening. Now let's set it in the wider context of the Bible. In the first two chapters of the Bible, everything is, as God said, very good. God blesses mankind, and he speaks with mankind in the garden. But then, uh, the fall into sin occurs in chapter 3, plunging the world into rebellion and placing the world under God's curse. Now, go forward to the last two chapters of the Bible. Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. In the last two chapters of the Bible, we have prophecy of the eternal state. And there in Revelation 21 and 22 is a new heavens and a new earth, including a new Jerusalem. We're told that God will dwell with his people, that he will wipe away every tear, that death shall be no more, neither shall there be sadness, nor crying, nor pain. Nothing unclean will ever enter the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's how history will and that will be the eternal state that will last forever and ever and ever. Now, from Genesis chapter 3 through Revelation chapter 20, we see sin in the world. There, there was no sin in Genesis 1 through 2, and in Revelation 21 and 22, in the new heavens, the new earth, and new Jerusalem, there will be no sin. But in between those bookends, we see sin in the world. And this is where we live. We live between Genesis 3 and Revelation chapter 19. We live in a sinful world that is in need of redemption. The Bible both proclaims to us the Redeemer, whom we need personally, and proclaims to us how we as his redeemed ones are to live in a fallen world by God's grace for God's glory. And the book of Psalms proclaims both. The book of Psalms proclaims to us the Redeemer, whom we need personally. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm that prophesies the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in great detail and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are other messianic psalms as well some of which, like Psalm 22, foretell the sufferings of Christ, how he would suffer in order to redeem us. Psalm 35 that we are looking at does point forward to the sufferings of Christ. And as we will see, and as we saw last time, Jesus himself quotes from Psalm 35 and speaks of it being fulfilled in him. At the same time, uh, Psalm 35 proclaims to us how we, as God's redeemed ones, are to live in a fallen world by God's grace for God's glory. Psalm 35 is a model for us of how we are to turn to the Lord when we are sinned against, when evil is done 
against us. It teaches us how to draw near to the Lord in the midst of a sinful, evil, fallen, rebellious world. Psalm 35 was written by David. It was written by him at a time when enemies were wickedly seeking to take his life. We saw last time that uh, when David was but a shepherd boy, uh, he was anointed at the Lord's direction uh, by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. The Spirit of God departed from Saul. Uh, the Spirit had been upon Saul to enable him uh, to fulfill the office of king. And yet, Saul blatantly disobeyed God. And for his disobedience, uh, he would forfeit the office of king. The Spirit left Saul. Uh, David was anointed at the Lord's direction to be the next king of Israel. And the Spirit came upon him for the purpose of anointing him for kingship. Though at that point, Saul was still sitting on the throne. And it wouldn't be a long time until a long time after that that David actually would ascend to the throne. But from the time that David was anointed, all the way through the rest of his life, he continually had enemies who sought to take his life. And so we don't know exactly where Psalm 35 fits into that, that whole history, but it was certainly at a time where he had enemies who were seeking to take his life. Uh, this psalm can be carefully applied uh, to our lives as believers when we suffer at the hands of evil men. Though, as we talked about before, we do need to be aware of some differences between David and ourselves. Uh, he was anointed to be the king. Um, and he served for many years as the king. And so uh, he was responsible uh, to enforce justice uh, in the land. Now, that makes David very different from us. David also lived before Christ, and we live after the first coming of Christ. And, and Christ has given us clear instructions on, on how we are to love our enemies and pray for them and so forth. Though we did see last time that looking to the Lord for justice to be done is not inconsistent with loving our enemies and, and doing good to them. The psalm, battlefield as the psalmist cries out to the Lord to defend him. I'm going to read to us all of Psalm 35 so that we are reminded of what we studied before, and then we will read the, the section for tonight. So if you're able, please stand in honor of the word of God. Psalm 35. Of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net from me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. 
let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I, I prayed with head bowed down on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land that devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. But those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord, who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. I have a question for discussion that I put in the bulletin that asks, and this is in reference to uh, verses 19 through the end of the psalm, it asks, what attribute of God is mentioned multiple times in these verses? What does this divine attribute have to do with the psalm as a whole? So first of all, what attribute of God is mentioned multiple times in verses 19 to the end? Yes, Andrew. All right, God's righteousness. And what verses do you see God's righteousness mentioned? Uh, verse 28 and 27. All right. Verse 28. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness, God's righteousness. And there's one more place where God's righteousness is mentioned. Does anyone know what verse that is? Caleb? Mom? 24. Look at verse 24. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. So, uh, Andre mentioned God's righteousness and God's work of vindicating that goes hand in hand with that. So, God's righteousness is mentioned multiple times. What does this divine attribute have to do with the psalm as a whole? What does God's righteousness have to do with this psalm as a whole? Andre? 
believe David is asking uh, God for vindication based on his presence. So, although David says, I did no wrong, he's still asking that he would be vindicated based on God's righteousness and not his own. We'll, we'll take a look. That, that, that word vindicate is really significant. We'll take a close look at that. But, um, Priya. Yes, yes. So David's asking God to judge on his behalf, and God's judgment or his justice um, is part of his righteousness. He judges righteously. Does anyone want to add anything to that? Yes. I was, I was going to say that um, David is asking God to fight on his behalf. David's not taking justice into his own hands. He's looking to the Lord to make things right. He's looking to the one who is righteous to make things right. Okay. As we uh, dig into these verses, we will see these things more fully. Uh, do note that in this psalm, the psalmist approaches God as my God, my Lord. Uh, notice that in verse 23. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God. God has brought the psalmist into personal relationship with him. And the psalmist approaches God um, on the, the basis of that relationship that God in his grace has given the psalmist with himself. The psalmist knows God as his God, his Lord, and he approaches his God uh, in this psalm, just as we, who are believers in Jesus Christ, are to regularly draw near to God, who is our God, our Lord, uh, in prayer, in praise, in, in worship. Now, in, in verses 19 through 26, we have specifically a prayer for vindication. A prayer for vindication. Take a close look at verse 19. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. And let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. David's enemies rejoiced. At David's stumbling. Notice that back in verse 15. In verse 15 he said. But at my stumbling. They rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. In, in some way David stumbled. Uh, he, he had some calamity. And, and when David was down. His enemies rejoiced over his fall. They rejoiced o over his stumbling. And their rejoicing over David will continue if they succeed in their plot to take David's life. They will rejoice in his destruction. Now, here the psalmist asked the Lord to bring their gloating to an end. He says, Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. He asked the Lord to bring their gloating to an end. The gloating included or would include winking at one another. 
a form of congratulating one another on bringing about David's fall. They are wrongfully the psalmist's foes. Notice that word wrongfully in verse 19. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes. As it's put in the last line of that verse, they hate David without cause. David has not wronged these individuals. Uh, He has treated them well. And in verses 12 through 14, he spoke of how he treated them well. He he spoke of of how when they were sick, uh, he wore sackcloth. He he, he fasted. He he prayed for them. Which implied that he prayed for their healing. Uh, he, He treated them as his friend, as his brother. He lamented them as he would lament his his mother. He treated them well, and yet they have hated him. They have made themselves his foes. They are wrongfully his foes. He's done nothing wrong to them. He's innocent in the matter, and they are treating him with hatred. They are doing evil to him. Now, Jesus, we saw last time, he quotes verse 19 in John 15. He's speaking to his disciples on the night before he goes to the cross. I put it in your notes, John 15, 24 to 25. Jesus said to his disciples, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus is speaking about the unbelieving Jews. They hated me without a cause. That hatred would be seen most plainly just hours after Jesus speaks these words uh, when he will be arrested and he will be condemned and he will be crucified, though he is absolutely innocent and righteous and holy. Jesus says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. What David experienced in Psalm 35 foreshadows what the son of David would experience. Being hated without a cause. Now, it hurts tremendously when people rejoice in our failings or mock us in our defeats. The psalmist experienced this. Christ experienced this more intensely as he will be hanging upon the cross. His enemies will will see him as having been defeated and they will, will mock him. If you are the Christ, come down from the cross. They're going to gloat over what they see as their victory over Jesus of Nazareth. Their destruction of Jesus of Nazareth at the cross. It hurts tremendously when people rejoice in our failures or mock us in our defeats. The psalmist experienced this. Christ experienced this more intensely. And we as Christ followers can expect to experience this from the world. Jesus said in John 15, just a few verses earlier, in verses 18 and 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's why Saul hated David. God had chosen David to be the next king. God gave his spirit to David, and David had great military victories, and he received the praises of the people. And Saul hated David. And it will be no different for us as followers of Jesus Christ. There will be times where we will experience the hatred of the world, the hatred that Christ experienced, because we are Christ's followers, because we are faithful to Christ, we will experience some of that hatred, being hated without cause. Now, let's go on to verse 20. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. Notice that the psalmist is not the only one who is being attacked. He says, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. Others are being attacked by these enemies as well. Verse 21, they open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. David's speaking of how his enemies make false accusations against him. Claiming that they've seen him do something wrong. Back in verse 11, David said that they are malicious witnesses. And that's certainly in mind here. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. Verse 22, you have seen, O Lord. So the enemies claim that their eyes have seen something. David says to the Lord, you have seen, O Lord. Be not silent, O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. I have a question that I put in the, the bulletin to ask, what do verses 22 and 23 teach us about God? Yes, Debbie. All right, we see that God will vindicate his people. Uh, David understands that. Uh, he, he says in verse uh, 23, Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. He prays that because he knows that that's what God does. God vindicates his people. Anything else that you see in verses 23 and 24 um, about God? Daniel. So God, God's very well aware when, when we suffer um, at the hands of evildoers, God is very aware. We saw that back in verse 22 when he said, You have seen, O Lord. Anything else? Pray. The 
Lord comes to the, to the defense of his people. Um, like, like you see that example where Daniel is in the lion's den and the Lord delivers him. Shalom. You know that none of them thought his seed, but at the same time, he was not being thought. So God does not always vindicate immediately. Um, here, some time has gone by. This is, Lord, Lord, you've seen this. You know what has happened. Um, now he's asking him, awake. Rouse yourself. Um, act on what you have seen. Because God does not always act right away. And actually, I would say, usually he does not act right away. Usually there is some time that he gives. Anything else? Yes, on the other. I would say that um, the, uh, the Old Testament, uh, in many uh, books, God says, who can you call out to? Right? So it's as if David knows that. And I'm going to call out to you. I know you see this. Please, continue. The Lord listens to the cries of his people, which is why David cries out to him. I want us to look more closely at the beginning of verse 22. You have seen, O Lord. Think about what the Lord has seen. The Lord has seen David's innocence. And the Lord has seen the evil done against David. As David cries out these words in 22 and 23, He's asking the Lord to act on what he has seen. As the Lord did when he saw the Israelites being mistreated by the Egyptians. I put in your notes Exodus chapter 3 verses 7 through 8. Then the Lord said to Moses at the burning bush, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. David knew that the Lord had seen the affliction of the Israelites. And having seen their affliction, knowing their sufferings, the Lord had come down and delivered them out of the Egyptians' hands. David now says, You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. When evil is done to us, we can know that the Lord sees. And we can ask him to act on our behalf. The Bible is clear from beginning to end that the Lord sees all. Nothing escapes his notice. Things may escape the notice of the people around you. Things may escape the notice of your family members. Things may escape the notice of your friends. Things may escape the notice of those who are in positions of authority. But nothing escapes God's notice. He sees everything that you do. And he sees everything that is done 
to you. And we can ask the Lord, our Heavenly Father, the Divine Judge, to act on our behalf. We have an example of doing so. A model of doing so. That, that we would do so. Now here David asked the Lord, as the Divine Judge, to, to awake and to try his case and to rule in his favor. Let's continue in verse 24. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Notice here in verse 24, the psalmist asked the Lord to judge his case according to the Lord's righteousness. It's vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness. We need to make sure that we understand God's righteousness. I put in your notes a good definition of God's righteousness. It comes from the systematic theologian John Frame. He wrote quite well, The main idea of divine righteousness is that God acts according to a perfect internal standard of right and wrong. All his actions are within the limits, if we can use that term reverently, of that standard. So there's, an there's a standard of right and wrong that is found in God himself. And God always acts according to that perfect standard of right and wrong. That's God's righteousness. Now, God's justice is closely connected. That God is just means that he judges the behavior of his moral creatures, including men and angels, according to his perfect internal standard of right and wrong. Rewarding wrong. So righteousness has to do with God's actions. Justice has to do with God judging creatures according to that perfect standard of right and wrong. Rewarding right and punishing wrong. Now David here in these verses that we're looking at, when he prays, Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness. He is asking the divine judge for justice. He's asking the divine judge to clear his name. False accusations have been made against him. He's asking the divine judge to clear his name. To declare his innocence in these matters. In other words, to declare his righteousness in these matters. Not, not to declare that, that, that David had always been in the right. Clearly David was a sinner saved by grace. But in these matters uh, of these, the, the, these accusations that have been brought against David, declaring his innocence, declaring his righteousness. He's asking the divine judge to stop his enemies and to punish his enemies. You see those things in different parts of the psalm. That all is what he's asking when he, he prays here, Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness. Verse 25, Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. In other words, in verse 25, the psalmist asked the divine judge to stop his enemies from carrying out their evil plan. The plan is to take his life. David is asking the divine judge to stop them.
Now, it's kind of striking to us, knowing that David was king. Uh, we don't know for sure if he was king when he wrote this, but knowing that he was king for many years, it's kind of striking that he doesn't just take the matter into his hands. He goes to the divine judge. That's the divine judge to stop them. Verse 26. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Now, understand that for the sake of our salvation, Christ suffered the same sorts of things that David suffered, he's speaking of here in these verses. In fact, Christ suffered so much more than what David suffered here. Christ, like David, was hated without cause. Like David, Christ's enemies sought to take his life. Like David, Christ was falsely accused. And rulers who sent Jesus, the Pilate, to be crucified, gloated and mocked Christ when he hung upon the cross. Just as David's enemies were rejoicing over his downfall and were preparing to rejoice when they would destroy him. Now, as the psalmist does here, Christ entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I want you to see that in the, in the quotation I put in your notes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21-23, which reads, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As Christ was so terribly treated, the righteous one by the unrighteous, the holy one by the unholy, one who was good by those who were evil. Throughout that unjust trial, throughout being unjustly flogged and beaten and spit upon and mocked, being unjustly put upon that cross, all the mockery he suffered there upon the cross. Each step of the way as he suffered at the hands of evil men, he was entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what the Apostle Peter tells us about those events. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Christ was entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did not revile in return. He did nothing uh, to right those wrongs. But he entrusted himself to his father, whom he knows judges justly. He trusted his father to judge those who did such evil against him. Now, the purpose 
of Christ suffering these things was for our salvation. The eternal Son of God did not just walk into these things. It was the plan of the Father. This was for the, the express purpose of atoning for your sin and my sin. This was for the express purpose of saving us from our sins and giving us salvation by grace. As we read in the next verse in First Peter, First Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. What was he doing? He was bearing our sins in his body as he suffered. He was paying the penalty for our sin. By his wounds, you have been healed. Not speaking of physical healing, like the prosperity teachers twist this verse to say. But clearly in context, it's talking about the healing of the soul from sin. By his wounds, as prophesied in Isaiah 53, by his wounds you have been healed from sin, from the, the, the condemnation of a holy God that was upon us for, for our sin. That's why Jesus suffered these things. Now, we read in verse 23 of 1 Peter 2 that Christ continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And the Lord did not vindicate the son of David immediately. Just as he did not vindicate David immediately. For, for six hours, Jesus Christ hung upon that cross. The last three hours in darkness. God did not immediately vindicate the Son of David. In our psalm, in verses 22 and 23, the psalmist says, Be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself from my vindication. It, it, it seems to him that God is asleep. Because God did not vindicate David Immediately. The Lord had a purpose. If he had vindicated the son of David immediately, we would not be saved. You know, if when those evil doers started making those false accusations against our Lord in, in, that, in that court case, if, our, if, if God immediately vindicated his son, there would have been no cross. There would have been no atonement. There would be no salvation for our souls. For God's purpose, God had to wait to vindicate His Son. And so God had His purpose for David. There was a reason, there was a purpose why God had not yet vindicated him. Not, not a purpose that was revealed to the psalmist, not a purpose that was revealed, that has been revealed to us, but a purpose in the mind, in the heart of God. A purpose in the wisdom of God. And our Heavenly Father has a purpose in not vindicating us immediately. Usually, when evildoers 
do their evil against us when we have done nothing wrong in the matter. It's very rare that God will immediately vindicate us. Oftentimes, it's after a significant period of time. And just as God had a purpose in not vindicating the son of David immediately, and he had a purpose in not vindicating David immediately, so he has a purpose in not vindicating us immediately. And it's for us to cry out to the Lord, like in verse 17, How long, O Lord, will you look on? It's for us to pray along the lines of of verse 23, Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication. We are to follow the example of Christ that we read how he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We don't take a lack of God's action as justification to now take vengeance or to take justice in our own hands. No, we continue to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. We are to seek justice from the Lord rather than taking it in our own hands. And at times we are to seek justice from those to whom God has entrusted justice. That's the first section in our psalm. The last section is praise to the Lord. That's in verses 27 and 28. Look with me in our text at verse 27. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. Here in verse 27, David speaks of my righteousness. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. He's using the word righteousness in the sense of vindication, which is what the psalmist has been requesting. And that's why the New American Standard translates it as vindication here in verse 27. The sense of it is, let those who delight in my vindication shout for joy and be glad. But but the word literally means righteousness. What happens to David affects the nation whom he has been anointed to lead, whether for good or for bad. The psalmist is praying that his future vindication would be an encouragement to God's people that his vindication would rejoice the hearts of God's people and would lead them to forever praise the Lord who gave the vindication. Notice that in verse 27. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. That's when he receives vindication from the Lord. Let them shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. The word welfare comes from the Hebrew word shalom. What does that Hebrew word shalom uh, literally mean? Or how is it most often translated? Someone other than shalom. Peace. means peace. It also means well-being. That's the idea of peace in the Old Testament, is well-being. Translated here, welfare. Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare, the shalom, the peace, the well-being of his servants. That's how he anticipates God's people will praise the Lord 
after David receives vindication from the Lord. God's vindication of his people is not promised in a certain time frame. And it often does not occur in this age. But it is certain to come. If not in this age, in the age to come. For God is righteous. And he truly delights in the well-being of his servants. Just read the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. We read of how the saints will be persecuted, many will be martyred, how we are called to persevere to the end, whatever the cost may be. Revelation declares that God will pour out his wrath upon this evil world. And Jesus Christ will execute judgment. He will come with a sword. He will come on a, a charger, a, a white war horse, and he will defeat his enemies. He will cast Satan into the lake of fire. And he will throw all evildoers, that is, those whose names are not written in the book of life, into the lake of fire, along with the devil and his angels. God will vindicate his people. Those whose names are written in the book of life, they will forever be with the Lord. Every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more pain. Nothing evil or unclean will ever enter the new Jerusalem. God's name will be written on the, the foreheads of his people. God will vindicate his people. Oftentimes, for God's purposes, in God's wisdom, it's not in this age. But if it's not in this age, it certainly is in the age God is righteous. He judges righteously. And as we see in verse 27, He is great. And he delights in the well-being, the shalom of His servant. Verse 28, Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness. And of your praise all the day long. The result of the Lord's vindication of his servant will be praising the Lord's righteousness. Notice his righteousness being praised there in verse 28. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness. Will tell of the rightness of what God does. At the end of history when God completes his plan that he is unfolding, it will be absolutely clear that God is righteous. That everything he does is perfectly right. And he will be praised for his righteousness forever and ever. 
Now we live in a day when some of the justice which the world calls for is not according to a righteous standard. We've seen that God's justice is according to his righteousness. But we live in a day when some of the justice which the world calls for is not according to a righteous standard. For example, critical race theory, which has become very popular in secular um, um, universities as well as in public schools uh, prior to the college level. Critical race theory accuses whole classes of people of being oppressors using an unrighteous standard. Well, your skin is this color, so you you are in this class of oppressors. You are this gender, so you are in this class of oppressors. They call for justice to be done. In light of the oppression, this whole critical race theory is calling for justice according to a standard that is not righteous. Think of how some of the cases in our nation's courts appear to be based more on politics than the law. The case in our law courts is based on politics rather than on the law. Justice is being called for. Justice is not being called for according to a righteous standard. And other examples could be given. We live in a day where justice is called for, but oftentimes not according to a righteous standard. This psalm teaches that justice is important and that true justice is based on the standard of God's righteousness. As we saw in verse 24, his righteousness spoken of, vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. As we saw in verse 28, then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness. True justice is based on the standard of God's righteousness. The psalm also teaches that true justice is cause for joy and for praise to God. That's what you see in verse 27 and 28. David envisions and he asks that when he's vindicated, God's people would praise our great God for his righteousness as seen in his vindication of his servant. True justice is cause for joy and cause for praise to God. Well, do you have any questions about anything that we have, have seen here? Or do you have any comments related to this passage to, to edify us tonight? Daniel. Exactly. That's a great cross-reference. 
Revelation chapter 12, verses 19. I'm sorry, I'm sorry Romans. It's 12, 12, 19. I was looking at Romans. That's what Romans 12, 19. Yes, Ross. It's hard to tell. It's very possible that it would be when Absalom, when Absalom was seeking to take his life, and Shimei was mocking him. But I think it's left uh, without enough detail to really you know, specifically identify it with one historical narrative because it's left in a way to be applied to God's people in various circumstances. And so we don't see it, well, we see some historical indicators in the Psalms. We don't see, all, oftentimes we don't see a lot. Um, and it's purposeful because it's meant for us to use in drawing near to God. Yes, Michelle? Yeah, you see that in the law of Moses, um, that, that there were times where self-defense was was permissible. There's a, there's a difference between self-defense and vengeance, and, and when we are hurt and are angry, it, it can be very difficult. Um, to, to draw that line correctly. So it's very, very, very careful. Anyone else? Damon. Uh, I'll, I'll say I don't see a need for to, for for me personally to to have a gun. Um, I'd be concerned about it ending up being used for a bad purpose rather than a good purpose. I know that God is our defender, um, so I, I I personally I don't I don't see a need for it. But God's word doesn't prohibit it. No. Yeah, and, and if we do carry something like like mace with us, it's important that our trust is not in that, but our trust is in the Lord. We might need to use it, but our trust needs to be in the Lord. We're not to trust in horses, not to trust in chariots. All right, we, we can go further with this, but we want to protect our time with prayer, so let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for this passage of Scripture. We pray, Father, that you would guide us um, in applying it to our lives. Uh, Lord, uh, give us the wisdom uh, to, 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 to follow this, this model in drawing near to you um, in times uh, where we are mistreated by evildoers. Lord, we thank you that you see that nothing escapes your notice. And we thank you that in your perfect time you do vindicate your people. May our trust be in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.